Thank you for joining us. My name is Andy and I'm your host and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today we have a special guest, Pantaleon Torres from Masaywal Kuali Farms. They are a no-till, no-fossil-fuel farm utilizing organic practices to produce seasonal fruits and veggies in northeast Kansas. Their project is inspiring on a number of different levels. Not only are they working to find ways to scale production without relying on energy, which took millions of years to produce, but his dedication to his craft has made him as close to an expert as he would admit when it comes to the Florentine Codex, which I'll let him explain in our interview. His work around Three Sisters practices is second to none, and I genuinely hope everyone listening checks out his work on Instagram at Masaywal Kuali Farms. Don't worry, that will be spelled in the show's notes. If you've been enjoying our content, please, if you have a moment, give us a review on iTunes or Spotify. While this is something we constantly talk about, reviews are important because not only do they give us feedback on the show, but they also play an important role in how much various platforms will recommend us to new listeners. So if you've got a moment and you do enjoy the podcast, hit subscribe and then give us a rating. Now, let's get to the interview. Panta, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about food sovereignty. Can you introduce yourself and your farm? Yeah, my name is Pantaleon Flores. I run a farm called Masai Wild Quali Farms in Lawrence, Kansas. It's a three-quarter acre farm uh, that's actually on city land. So I actually lease land from the city to be able to have the access um, I need to run my farm. And then just a little bit about it. It's a, it's a no-till, no fossil fuel machine farm. So I'm using equipment like scythes and wheel hose and you know, basically just hand tools to do cultivation. And I mainly focus on fruits and herbs. So I've got a lot of strawberries and I'll be planting a bunch of grapes this year. And then a bunch of perennial herbs and then some annual vegetables as well as breeding corn. So I do a pretty wide spread of stuff that I'm starting to narrow down. I'm in year three. And yeah, I'm looking forward to this season. Hopefully some really exciting ancestral plants coming back to me from the seed bank. So some varieties of beans that are from Guanajuato, which is where my great grandfather came from. The corn that I also stewards from Guanajuato as well that I did get from the seed bank. And yeah, I'm just really excited for this season to see where I can take some stuff with breeding too. Yeah, the, the fun part about perennials is it really takes a couple of years to start seeing the fruits of the work you've been putting in. So I'm sure year three, you're, you're starting to get some of that real production happening. Yeah, it's feeling really good now. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I want to ask particularly about the no fossil fuel concept. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that attracts a lot of, you know, a lot of ears are going to start perking up when they're like, oh, no fossil fuel. Could you like explain a little bit? I know you, you mentioned like that you're using some hand tools, but like, how far does that really encompass? Yeah, so the it's kind of interesting because I'll get two reactions to this. I'll get like the ears perked up one and then I'll get the, hey, but that's not really the fossil fuel problem in agriculture. And I'm like, yes and yes, right? So we all know <laughs> the, the big part of the problem with fossil fuel in agriculture is the transportation of the food and the outputs and inputs, right? We know that that's the huge imprint. We know that the tractor itself is not the fossil fuel imprint that's really crushing everything. With that said, it's still, in my opinion, not a bad idea to go ahead and try and write out as much of that fossil fuel as you possibly can. You know, when it, when it comes to the planting that I'm doing as a solo farmer, it's relatively small still, right? I, I'm on three quarters of an acre. Uh, you can totally get away with not using fossil fuel machinery. And I, and I want to also note that I'm saying that from a perspective of privilege being able-bodied as well. So I know that there are also some limitations there. 
and that it is actually kind of a privilege to be able to completely farm without the use of fossil fuel machinery. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question specifically, but I mean, it's it's a very labor intensive form of farming where I'm using, you know, broad forking quite quite a bit, utilizing lots of, of straw mulch and hay mulch, you know, letting crop residues fall where they are basically, and then, uh, you know, jab planting into them. And so there's, there's a lot of different methods that come with that aspect of the no fossil fuel that really no-till is very set up for, I think. Yeah, absolutely. When we talk about things like no fossil fuel, I think it's really important in the sense of even if what you're doing today isn't particularly like exciting or novel, I think it pushes the conversation forward about how much can you scale things up without having to use those resources. And you have to start somewhere, basically. And I think that's why what you're doing is really important is because in a lot of ways, we have to start not from square one necessarily, but to take the resources and the knowledges that we've had, try to figure out what we've lost, and then we can figure out how do we move forward and scale up to a size that can feed a community without uh, massive inputs that we traditionally think of as like, well, yeah, you can have an urban farm, but how many people are you really feeding? Absolutely. Yeah. So like I, you know, I, like I said, I run my farm as a solo operation. I do not whatsoever condone that. Uh, (laughs) um, One of the great things as you've kind of mentioned already is, you know, as I'm doing this, no fossil fuel running it by myself, I'm seeing where, you know, those moments where I'm like, wait, why don't I just use a fossil fuel machine for this part? But then the other side of my brain is like, but if I had a crew of like six people, this would be nothing, right? So I'm thinking of really bigger corn plantings uh, and, and you know, really grain, grain harvesting. And what's really exciting about this year is that I'll be working with two other farms to collectively plant our grains. So we'll be going from plot to plot, planting our grains together without the use of fossil fuel machinery. And it's, it's really amazing how much more work can get done when you've got like an extra set of people to go out there and do it with you. So it's been interesting to see where I'm like, oh, I should totally use a fossil fuel machine or no, oh, wait, wait, wait. I should just ask for help and, and <laughs> cultivate community and get assistance with each other and reciprocity. And yeah, so it's been really interesting seeing how that has unfolded and, you know, where we just need to be more collective in our agriculture. Yeah. And that points to the fact that with with agriculture, what's really interesting is you really do only have a handful of choke points. Mm. You can do quite a bit on your own outside of usually seeding and the the harvesting, especially when you have to do things like threshing. Then it becomes a little bit of a longer process. Yeah. But if you can get that temporary support in those areas, it does give you a lot of opportunity to to do quite a bit on your own and more than most people, I think, realize. Totally. My first question is, you've brought up the fact, well, it's not my first, I guess I've asked you a couple questions, but <laughs> this idea of like farming at this scale and then you brought up this idea of bringing in some traditional foods and methodologies and things like that. So, I'm, I'm interested in how that's starting to impact how you're planting things. Like, are you, are you starting to think about more dynamic plantings and things like that, more traditional ways to manage crops, even though, because you don't have to worry about equipment coming in. You know, I'm thinking of like the MILPA system and things like that, where it's like you've got perennials paired with annuals, paired with like repeated burnings and accepting that instead of trying to keep animals out, you know, putting your less valuable crops around the edges and things like that to basically a a sacrifice crops as opposed to constant ongoing management. Have any of those kinds of ideas started percolating their way into the system itself yet? 
Absolutely. That that gives a perfect segue to talk about the Florentine Codex, actually. So the, the Florentine Codex from, I think it's 1552, is an account of many things. So there's there's like 12 different books in that series. The one that I mostly focus on is called Earthly Things. And within that text, there's uh, instructions for the cultivation of maize, um, you know, as, as was done by my ancestors in the 1500s and prior. One thing in there that I actually did, I did a USDA SARE research uh, farmer, grantor, farmer rancher grant. And um, I, you know, I took that system that was the instructions that were within that. And I did a comparative yield analysis with no-till, just regular no-till kind of planting. Did the planting side by side with corn from Grin, the seed station in Ames, Iowa. That was the Guanajuato maize that I was talking about. And, you know, kind of looked at like, which one would yield more just very baseline, like which one's going to yield more. And the, the ancestral planting yielded between three and 6% more than just the conventional jab planting did. And so that's something that I'm continuing to, to use. That's those instructions from uh, the Florentine codex to plant my corn. And they, they also suggest planting beans with it. They don't go the full three sisters in there, but you know, I, I I'm also going to start planting beans alongside them. And that's the one thing I didn't do. It, when I did the actual Sarah study and I only didn't do it because they suggested that you could do it in the instructions and not that they always did it. So I was like, well, let me just try it, you know, more baseline compared to just corn, just corn plantings. Right. So that seemed like more of a fair uh, analysis between the samples. Um, and so that's one thing I'm going to continue doing. I'm also going to continue experimenting with uh, three sisters plantings. I just applied for some more seeds from the the Grin uh, Seed Bank in Ames, Iowa. I kind of looked through all of those accessions. There's thousands and thousands of accessions in that. And I, I was able to locate some squash that's from Guanajuato. And uh, a variety of beans is also from Guanajuato. So I'll be able to do a Three Sisters completely from Guanajuato, where my great-grandfather came from. And I'm, I'm going to do that in two different ways. So I'm going to do the, the, the mounding style that everybody typically knows. And then there's also um, a three row of corn, row of squash, three row of corn, row of squash, um, kind of three sisters planting style. So I'm going to do those side by side um, and see which one's better, better fit for climate and soil in our area. So, yeah, I'm really, you know, looking back as far as I can. And it's hard because a lot of our resources were burned by the Spaniards or just, you know, completely destroyed and, and, and left, uh, left behind. But I, I'm really trying to go back and read the writings of my ancestors to see what they did um, and try and replicate that kind of stuff. And then, of course, you know, I mean, for me, I, when I plant, I know I'm planting at, at scale. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, oh, you grow strawberries. I'll say, what do you do about the birds? And I was like, I let them live. I'm like, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I have, you know, I've got, you know, 500 foot rows of berries. I, you know, we don't need all of those. And I don't feel like, you know, I'm not going to put up netting. I'm not going to go like sit in the field and blast off a gun. So the birds fly, you know, like I'm not going to do any of that stuff. They're, the birds yeah. are going to eat some, there's going to be deer who come along and eat some, not just, that's just how it's going to be. And if I'm really planting at scale, it's not going to matter. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I believe in, farms needing to understand the non-human world a lot better and and work more symbiotically with the non-human world and and yeah that's just that's just when what's going to happen we can call it loss or we can call it being in closer symbiosis basically like a tithe to nature for borrowing its soil for a moment totally yeah they've been here much longer anyway so <laughs> could you speak a little bit about further about the florentine codex like it, 
I know you said it's like this older text, but um, like, what's the big deal about it? And then um, a little bit about like, what exactly are you doing that's kind of pulling from that codex? Yeah, so the I'd say the big deal about that one is that it's one of the more accessible codices out there. So there's a lot of different Mashika Nahuatl cod- like codexes or ones that are written by uh, mostly written by Spaniards. So th- this is one that is from a Spanish perspective, obviously taken the information taken from indigenous people, and it's actually really mostly just that corn section in that book. There's there's a second one that I've been researching a lot on. Um, called the Codex Barberini. Um, and that one, the Badianus manuscript, is an herbalist book. So it's like remedies, plants, like actually how to put the medicine together and to administer it uh, and that kind of stuff. And that one is super interesting to me because it's actually written and illustrated by indigenous people, so by indigenous Mexicans. And so for me, that's even, that's, you know, it's way more powerful than something that's potentially filtered kind of through a Spanish lens. So what are what exactly are you pulling from the codex itself in terms of like what you're planting, how you're planting it? Yeah, so from the Florentine codex, I mainly have just pulled the corn planting instructions and really utilized that piece. There is a second manuscript called the Codex Barberini or Badianus manuscript. And that one is super interesting to me because it's actually written and illustrated by uh, indigenous Mexican people. Uh, which is very rare. It's like one of the few codexes that's actually, you know, authored by indigenous folks uh, back in the 1500s. Again, we're around like 1552. That one has really pointed me to a bunch of different plants that I uh, actually grow now in my own production. So there's like papalo is one that's in there. That's what was actually indigenously used before the Spanish brought cilantro in Mexican cooking. So if you want to really try some super authentic Mexican food, see if you can find or grow some papalo and just, you know, take, take the cilantro out and put the papalo in and you'll kind of get more of a, a real representation of, of an indigenous Mexican dish. The really hard part about that one is that there have been a few different translations with it and they haven't always been the most accurate just because they haven't necessarily been translated by people who are botanists or people who really understand like the indigenous culture behind the language or like interworks with the language. But I did most recently buy a book that basically takes all of those different translations, summarizes them, weeds out like a lot of the misrepresentation, miscommunication, mistranslations. And there's actually a new plant called, well, new to me plant, obviously, called the sand tomato that I'm going to be growing this year. It's in the nightshade family. So it looks like one of those dangerous poisonous ones, but it's kind of <laughs> like a giant huckleberry. That's awesome. Yeah. So Codex Barberini has been the one that I've been you know, really connecting with indigenous Mexican plants again. So the, that one has really shown me a lot of things that, you know, as we know, food is medicine. They're, they're, they are finding these in a medicinal book, but I'm also finding that there are pockets of places in, in Mexico that are, are using these in their dishes daily, you know? And so I'm really trying to bring that here to Kansas where we don't have a ton of access to, you know, really good, authentic your Mexican ingredients for cooking. So I, I also love cooking. I'm also a cook as a, in addition to being a farmer. But, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm mostly leaning towards the Codex Barber- Barberini more than the Florentine Codex these days. That's really interesting that there's like these plants that have been not necessarily lost, but kind mm-hmm. of marginalized that are very focal to some of these systems. So how does this corn layout look? Like, is it very similar to like the traditional milpa where it's like, you've got rows that are like 10 feet apart and there's like 
six different plants between six, 12, 20, sometimes different plants in between? Or is it more simplified compared to that? It's more simplified compared to that. It is more of a block style planting. The instructions are mainly around the cultivation aspects of corn. So there's mounding at three different stages of plant growth. And I love how poetically it's written too, because, you know, like we think of like corn manuals of today and it's like at the V2 stage, you like, you know, like talking about when the leaves are going off from the stalk. But here it's just like in its second like burst of life or shooting. So, you know, like second like shoot, second leaf V2 stage. Yeah. Uh, then you, you mount the corn again. So there's, there's these different stages of the corn uh, where you're mounding it. And what that's doing uh, from what I noticed in just the observation of, of, of growing it out like this is that those extra roots that you get at the bottom of the corn that pop out, those advantageous roots then get sunk in the soil quicker and it makes so much more sense that they end up yielding more because they can uptake more nutrient and more water that way. Yeah, They don't have to kind of fight their way downward or they don't have to be one of those varieties that produces that gel that fixes nitrogen from the air. And one of the really fortunate parts is that I, one of the main ones that I've been breeding out for three years ended up being one of those varieties that has that, that nitrogen fixing gel that I still need to do some more research on. So I can't, I can't quite speak too much to that that component of it. But, but yeah, I mean, the mounding really seemed to help a lot. And it was also interesting to me because it wasn't such like a, like a milpa or like a, a three sister style. It was way more what we think of scaling looks like, you know, it was way more block planted style, Um, but still of course suggested to cast beans at a certain stage. So, you know, it's saying, you know, do need to add a nitrogen fixer in there as well and that it can help or whatever. But yeah, it's actually more more block style, kind of like we see with conventional planted corn. Yeah, and I think like that points to like the scalability of some of the traditional farming practices that we kind of say these can't actually feed this many people. And it's like, well, actually, like people have shown ways it's more labor intensive for sure, but there's a lot we can do. And like I I think the idea that things are more labor intensive generally gets a bad rap when it shouldn't more people should be involved with where their food comes from. I know that's like an unpopular opinion, but like, (laughs) yes, people should know how to grow food and where it comes from and be involved in it and have some skin in the game, so to speak. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you think of like, yeah, like you said that the negative connotation of labor intensity, and then you think of all these people who would love to have this like agro utopia and they're not at the same time realizing that like, that utopia comes from a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> but then also, the more hands you have in it, the less intensive it becomes. Yeah. I mean, it's just there's, there's some calculation of like the, the bump we have to get over from the extra labor intensiveness plus the amount of extra hands in there making it then just as labor intensive as farming is because it's never going to not be labor intensive. Like it's farming. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. just, you just have to expect that. <laughs> yeah, the last... I don't know, 80 years has been like, historically speaking, will be a giant anomaly where we took all this energy from in the ground and we're like, hey, we're going to blow through it in 80 years. Yep. And then it's going to be gone. Then we're going to have to figure out how to do it again. And we need to do that now, not when we run out of fuel or when we run out of petrochemicals or whatever it might be. And that's okay. Like these systems take time to develop, but once they're there and we know how to manage them efficiently, there's still going to be a lot of labor and that's okay, but it's something we can do and still live like meaningful lives. Absolutely. And like, I, I couldn't imagine 
wanting a world where I can, where people continued in the forms of labor that they continue in, you know, stuck inside under fake lights and warehouses. And like, think of, you know, if we had a future where there were more jobs where people were able to be outside and use their bodies and like get that sunlight and the benefits from the soil and sure they may be working just as hard physically on some weird caloric scale, but the benefits of that kind of labor versus the kind of labor we typically have to sell our bodies for is just like the health trade-offs are like just non-comparable. Yeah. Yeah, Strictly from like an economic standpoint, the amount of energy that would be saved from like medical care and uh, mental health issues and all these other things. I think, I'm not sure if you could calculate them realistically, but I Mm -hmm. got to imagine that that would play into like when we're calculating that total labor factor, that it's not, while upfront, it might seem like it's more energy intensive. It it would balance out at some point and also be better for the environment mm-hmm. and like more sustainable. Yeah. So I, I also want to ask like outside of the actual farming itself, you talk a lot about making the farm a public work. What does that actually mean when you want it to be a public work? Yeah. So food is a public work is a big initiative that I'm pushing for locally right now. When I think of, you know, food as a human right, the way it's written and I look at the systems and people suffering under food apartheid, and I look at why that is, you know, if we do want to have these documents that say food is an inclusive human right, that governments should be responsible for, you know, taking hold of if, it, if the issue becomes too big, then we just need to start funding the production of food, right? As it currently stands, we're funding the consumption of food. We're funding programs like SNAP, which are totally necessary currently, that ultimately really only put money into the pockets of corporate agriculture. That's a system that subsidizes the consumption of food. If we were to actually subsidize the production of food, we could get way more food out of that. So in my proposal to institute food as a public work, a city or county would need a million dollar operating budget. I know that sounds like a lot, but that's 16 high paying jobs across vegetable orchard and animal production, and then also food logistics. And the amount of food that, you know, that, that many farmers can produce is in upwards of five to six million. So if you want to talk economics and return on investment, you know, that's a million dollar investment into sustainable green agriculture jobs that then returns five to six million dollars in produce and prepared foods every year. And so for me, when I think of food as a public work, it's like trying to hold the government accountable to the money that's already ours, right? This would be coming from from money that's already, you know, that's been taxed, that's coming from our pockets already. And at least, you know, it's gonna go into something like food. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy reminding you that if you're looking for more content outside of the scope of the podcast or sources, recommended readings, or ways to support us, you can find that at poorpearls.com. Further, we've expanded our delivery into video content on our YouTube channel, where we're able to show step-by-step how to do many of the processes that we talk about within the podcast. We have also started a Twitch channel where we platform various folks on skills from DIY mushroom production to the various methods to keep land out of the hands of developers. Again, all this can be found at poorproles.com, and we look forward to seeing you over there. You know, I, I live in a college town. Uh, most of the money that goes through the city, especially the city government, 
is really funneled to like housing developers, right? Because they need more houses for more students to go to the university or whatever. And I just think of like, you know, when they're talking about these economic trade-offs, they're like, oh yeah, and we'll build two units per hundred that are, you know, below market rate or whatever. And I'm just like, what kind of return is that for people? That's like, that's nothing. And like your, your market rate is already well above like what the median salary here is. So like, mar- like below market rate is still above like what the reality of that is. And it's just like, I see all this money getting poured, you know, locally into projects that don't really give back at all. And that's our money. Again, you know, that's our money from our sales tax revenue. And then I look at the federal government and I look at ag spending, you know, so in 2020, they spent $110 billion on agriculture. In my project, $5 billion would give $100 million farm endowments to every state, D.C. and Puerto Rico for 100 years. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that like that's, you know, $100 million is a million dollar operating budget every year for 100 years. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's one of those things you don't understand the scale until you like break it down and you're like, Jesus Christ. That billion number is so just astronomically out of our brains that like, yeah, we don't we don't grasp it. You're totally right. And so, you know, like five billion is what, like two percent of 110? And that's and that's a one time payment to set up hundred million dollar farm endowments in every state for like I said, like for 100 years, as, as a, that's why I call it the people's century farm. So it's, you know, $100 million farm endowments in every state would set up, you know, a people's farm in every state for 100 years or two for 50 or how, I mean, however people want to divide it up. My, my ideas and plans are, are ones that I want people to rip apart and put back together to make sense for where they're needed locally. I'm just trying to like kind of put these ideas out there and be like, look at how we're spending money. Look at what we value. What if we just started funding production and, you know, doing that everywhere? What could that look like? And then, you know, I also think about inequity in agriculture as far as racial inequity goes. You know, we all have heard the stats on, you know, 2% or less of farms are owned by Black, Indigenous, and people of color, farmers of color. If we were to, in the same fell swoop, dedicate $5 billion to $100 million farm endowments in every state, D.C. and Puerto Rico, while also employing BIPOC producers at the same time, think of the equity that would create. I mean, I know that's not land ownership, but to be perfectly honest, I'm not really interested in land ownership. I'm interested in the decommoditization of land and food. That brings up a really good point about like, it perpetuates the system. Now you've got new stakeholders that are owning land as opposed to saying, no, we shouldn't have ownership of land. And uh, I, I think that's almost like the next step for a lot of people where they're like, yes, like we should have all these marginalized groups should have access to the same resources and access and ownership are different things because of the way those play out over time, especially as equity builds up. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, also just for me on a personal note, like I know that I have to sell food in order to like pay my rent and, you know, pay for the, you know, everything that I need in life. But at the same time, like it feels spiritually harmful to me to sell food. Like I just don't with my, you know, I guess just the where that the place that I'm coming from selling food just feels wrong. And if I were enabled to, this is, it may sound totally selfish, but I honestly don't care. If I were enabled to have a, a, a good enough paying job where, you know, I could support my family and all I had to do was just like grow as much food as I could and make sure it got to people. Like I would be the happiest I've ever been in my entire life. <laughs> 
I mean, you know, the, when the plan that I put together calls for $60,000 a year salaries and most farmers are going to be like super jealous of that number. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I didn't pull that number out of nowhere. I, I looked at county salaries of people who work with the land. So parks, maintenance people, noxious weed specialists, GIS people, um, really, you know, anybody who works with land on the county level and, and I averaged their salaries out and I subtracted $10,000. Jesus. So, uh, so again, it's coming from a place of look at what we already pay for as far as land management goes. And what are we getting out of that? We're getting Roundup sprayed on Johnson grass and random patches that farmers call in. We're getting, you know, we're getting people who have good maps, which are great maps. Good maps are good. But like, what's the direct public benefit from that? Green open space is also a great thing. Nice maintained parks for people to go enjoy if they had the time to, <laughs> um, you know, again, it's like, I, I love parks. I hate the system that we live in and the fact that most people don't have time to go to one. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really looking at this from a, where are we already at? What are we already paying for perspective and kind of holding the mirror to what our values actually are on paper versus what we say we want them to be. And so, you know, $60,000 a year might sound like a lot, to a lot of people. And it's, it is, I mean, around here, it's $20,000 above the median, uh, median salary. And so it's a good high paying job, but that's also something that we're lacking here locally. And I think this points to something that we're starting to see some voices on like Sylvan Aqua does a great job of like definitely confronting the reality of the world we live in versus I think a lot of projects that don't, that just say, this is what I want. And this is like the future we need. And that's valid. But at the same time, saying this is what we want doesn't offer real solutions because they're not engaged with the structure that exists around us. And it's important to present alternate utopias, whatever you want to call them, for people to see and say, yeah, why don't we have this? But also, it's equally, if not more important to say, this is how we tackle the issue based in the world we live in, based in the financial and economic structure that we exist within. And that's, I think, where a lot of folks, especially on the left, really struggle with. It seems like it's an area where people get uncomfortable. Like, understanding finance is not a left wing thing. But, it, like, I'm an accountant and, like, I can, <laughs> val like, I'm okay with saying, like, we can talk about these things and we can be right. I think a lot of it comes down to a lot of people thinking that maybe it, because it's finance that the right might own that space, but they don't. Like, there's a lot to be said about, breaking down things from an economic and financial perspective from the left and being able to make a good, if not better argument than, you know, traditional economic policy and, you know, understanding of accounting and things like that. And that's where I think like this in particular is really important to, to say, look, we can do this and I can show you how, and it makes financial sense. And that's not a bad thing to be able to say that. It does seem like something that people don't want to do or don't want to engage with. Yeah, uh, let me throw some farm math at you then, since we're talking sure. practical and pragmatic. I went ahead and did a little a little math this morning. For the last couple of years, I've been working with our local Food Not Bombs chapter to to feed around 100 meals to folks every week. I've had to pull back a bit from that because of baby here, but <laughs> but you know, for the year that I did do it, I was really I didn't really crunch these numbers until not too long ago, and so I'm thinking, you know, we're pulling a lot of most of this food from farms. So this is like farm fresh, like not even necessarily seconds or whatever seconds are to most people's brains. But yeah, so this is, you know, practically like farm to table meals for houseless and displaced folks every week. So the math breaks down 100 meals a week 
we're going to put the economics on it because farm to table is not cheap. And I went ahead and just said, okay, let's say $30 a meal. That's actually a pretty cheap farm to table meal. Yeah. So hundred dollars or hundred meals, $30 per person. That's a $3,000 food service. The labor of that was, uh, you know, about six hours and six people at $20 an hour, because we're going to use that MIT wage calculator because it's there for a reason. And, uh, that's about $720. So you're, you're at, $3,720 per service, food and labor at 52 weeks a year. That gives you $193,440 in service a year coming for free from mutual aid. That's 200,000, right? Like that's already 20% of that million yeah. returned if you were to just do one meal a week because, you know, food as a public work isn't just throwing produce boxes at people because you can't do that. <laughs> like, I mean, yes, you can do that. A lot of people do do that, but like, Food as a public work also includes, um, in my ideal world, at least two dinners and one breakfast a week. So prepared foods for me are super important because I don't think, I know for a fact of someone who's suffered from food apartheid that you can't just throw produce at people who are already working overtime trying to make it happen and, and say that. Yeah, here's a zucchini and they're like, okay. <laughs> you're like, cool. Yeah, let me just gnaw on that, right? <laughs> you know, if you were to do say two meals a week, right? At that same rate, it's almost $400,000 right there in return to the public. And that's just the two prepared meals a week. That's already almost half of the return back if we're really going to crunch these economic numbers fairly. Um, because I also don't believe in measuring pounds of food donated. I think people in food banks would really be better served putting a number on that, uh, a dollar amount on that. Pounds are cute and fun and everything, but like at the end of the day, like you said, we're thinking pragmatically in a system and under a system, we have to kind of not define ourselves by that, but at least translate ourselves into what that is. And so, you know, food as a public work isn't just produce to people, it's prepared foods to people. And those numbers really just like, I had to sit back for a minute when I did that math, because I was like, we're, we as a bunch of poor folks are doing $200,000 in service a year, just one day a week. <laughs> yeah. It's just wild. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely wild. And it also points, I think, to the, the magnitude of what we really need mm -hmm. because of the fact that you only fed probably like one-tenth of a percent of the population Yeah, uh, one day a week. Mm -hmm. And that was that's the total economic cost or value or whatever choice you want to, however you want to think about it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we see a lot of stuff about like urban gardens and community farms and it's important but the scale is really important to see as well because when we're talking about feeding people every day, like there's that baseline, like your protein or your grain that I think gets forgotten a lot when we're talking about like urban farms. Like you'd mentioned like growing grains and that's not something you hear very often from small, especially urban farmers and things because first, it's not sexy. Second, it's <laughs> a cheap food to buy. So like giving someone... Like, just say you gave them a 50-pound bag of grain. First, they got to grind it up. Or, and second, like, even if they you grind it up for them, like, 50 pounds of flour is, like, 20 bucks or, you know, mm -hmm. not a lot of money. And there's a very long and complicated reason for that. The short answer is subsidies. But it speaks to the fact that a lot of the projects around urban agriculture in particular, not to pick on those folks, but it doesn't address like the, the, you know, if you're thinking like the food pyramid, which I know is like outdated now, but like the bottom of the food pyramid is like grains or, you know, whatever that, that caloric filler is that keeps us going. It's great to get 
10 pounds of tomatoes and carrots and all that stuff. Like it's great, but you can't live on just salad and that's what those things are. Yep. So, yeah, I I think it's really cool that you're getting into the grain side of things and um, that you're trying to bring a lot of these practices back in because one of the things that we've been focusing on in a certain series on our podcast is looking at traditional land management practices. So, while we're recording this right now, we haven't released it, but we actually have a two-part series coming out on the MILPA system. Mm, Cool. Which is really cool and interesting and we actually got to speak with some farmers down in Belize that are still doing the MILPA system, which was super awesome. There's actually uh, some folks that were down there that happen to be from Nebraska. I guess they're working, there's a a Maya community in Nebraska or Kansas, somewhere over there. Okay. (laughs) And um, these farmers went down there to basically learn the traditional farming management techniques because a lot of people in the community felt like they weren't able to access the foods they needed. So, it it was really interesting to like see how they were still doing these practices and how that paired with like the fact that there were so many like transplants in the United States that were trying to also reconnect with these traditional methods. It's something that I think we have a hard time with like negotiating how to look at traditional practices where they belong today, especially in a place that's been colonized and is still continuing to be mm-hmm. actively colonized in different ways and kind of what what the place is of these traditional practices in a place that's in many ways terrible. <laughs> it's just, it, it's a really weird and uncomfortable conversation, but it's a very necessary and important conversation to have. Otherwise, we're just going to like continue destroying the planet and like not making any progress. So, I think what you're doing is really cool and a really important building block and whatever comes next if it's good. Yeah. I mean, we, you're right. We have to really be thinking about how we're moving and acting and, and, you know, if our desire is to create new systems, then we have to like think twice as hard on that kind of stuff because we could just be like, you kind of alluding to creating a new system of colonization, which is not, not where we want to go. Right. We don't, we want to replace yeah. that, um, displace that. And you, I would even go as far as to displace that. I want to ask, like with all the work you're doing, it sounds like you've been building some inroads into the community. What has the response been around the work you're doing and kind of how it's centered on these indigenous practices and kind of trying to show an alternative to the way food systems around where you are have been typically understood? That's a tough one because I, I, I think if I categorized it, I'd have two different reactions. I'd have the knee-jerk reaction of oh God, they're taking over almost like without saying it. (laughs) Um, And it's just like that one, I I just kind of have to write off and let roll off my back because like I could waste my entire life fighting that segment of the population. Just for a little bit of background, you know, Lawrence is I think like 72 to 5% white, which is like whiter than Kansas average white. Um, And and allegedly liberal in its word, but not always necessarily, rarely, I would say more honestly, in its practices. And so there, there's a big undercurrent of that, even within the farming population. And I, I think a lot of that comes from a place of having struggled, which if I don't want to go too deep into it, but I, I kind of find there's two segments of, of people if I really want to get you know, just breaking it down into a binary, which I rarely do. Uh, there's the people who struggled who want to see other people struggle because they struggled because struggle is life. And then there are the people who struggled who are like, I don't want anybody to go through that layer of hell like I did. And, and they make it easier and are more accepting when people get things that they never got. 
And so, yeah, I guess maybe I should say it that way. There's, there's kind of two different reactions. There's the one of, but we all had to struggle like this. So, so do you not even thinking about the extra layers of struggle being, you know, a black indigenous or brown person in a, a white hegemonic sphere. Um, and then there's the other ones who are, who are really just down. I mean, we're going to, we'll see. I mean, that's the other thing we'll see, you know, we have a big volunteer list that we're trying to set up for the indigenous community center farm. We had a really big show out for donating funds for that quarter acre of berries. And I think at the time we'll tell, we might have to check in again later to really know how big that side is. But I think from what I've seen, and this is the one thing that people will learn about me is I don't like to rely on hope as a construct from the things that I have seen. I have good feelings about people really coming through with what they've said they want to help with. That's awesome. That really roundabout answers your question. I think, I hope maybe. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know, it's, I, I think what you're experiencing is very common when you show an alternative or you try to show an alternative, there'll be that group of people that are like, yes, this is the future. And then there's the people that are like, there's a reason why things are the way they are. And it's only when you can prove that it works that other side will come around. Obviously, that side that's negative also has different layers of what that looks like between race and class and identity and like how that affects them and how they perceive the work they're doing. So, there's a lot that goes into it, but it's good to hear that there is support for it and there's as uh, cautiously as you say, hope for what you're doing. Yeah. And I I think there may also be a third side. I think there's also the side that will just never be happy. Right. So let's, let's, <laughs> let's destroy the binary because I hate binaries. There's also the side that just will never be happy. And I think that comes from a place of people having tried a lot again, you know, and, and having faced a lot of barriers and having not gotten what they, what they saw as their vision. But what I think is important in these spaces is that our vision becomes more collective and we don't run into things like founder syndrome or situations where, you know, someone maybe tried this one thing and then somebody else tried it and they were successful. So we're just going to be mad at them. Right. Like that just, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I have to let that stuff roll off my back too. Cause I I've experienced that as well. So I, let's, let's put three sides on it. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's fair. Um, I think, <laughs> I think there's a lot of hope or I don't want to say hope. So I'll say, I think that there's a lot of people that have visions of what they would like to accomplish and, and for many of them, for various reasons, it's just not going to happen. And then when you do it, they're like, well, that was my idea. <laughs> and like, it, I, I get it. Like, it, you feel like you're a visionary and it, you're not the person that's delivering on it. But there's a lot of work that goes into it. It's not just going and getting some land and digging some holes and putting some seeds in the ground. There's a lot of background stuff that goes into the labor that uh, is easy to not notice, uh, but is important to understand. So, I think that's why the work you're doing is really important. So, for folks that want to support the work you're doing or want to check out what you're doing on social media, could you give us some plugs for that? Yeah. So, I mainly am just on Instagram. The Instagram is Masewa Kuali Farms. I would also suggest following Indigenous Community Center and that's the handle for Instagram. Uh, I recently helped them gain access to an acre at the same incubator farm site that I'm at to start an Indigenous uh, food sovereignty farm. And so uh, I really want to make sure I give them a, a good shout out and kind of helping do some site planning and fundraising for that. So we can, we actually already raised a quarter acre of, of berry starts 
just from community funding and uh, donors. So I really want to give that a shout out too. We'll also be starting, um, we're calling, we're tentatively calling it the Indigenously Free Food Fellowship. And that would be a, a youth farmer fellowship for indigenous, uh, indigenous youth to really engage in, in farming and agriculture and reconnecting with, with roots and the land. And so that, that's something else we'll be fundraising for soon. Yeah. And I think I'll just go ahead and add, you know, if someone wants to go to my website, which I should probably also plug, that's massefarm.org. If someone goes to my website and reads the food is a public work giant document, bless them if they can make it through that um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and rips it off and does it before me, please do it, please, like, please go do it so that I can be like, hey, look, they did it. Now we can do it. <laughs> um, and that's that's a piece of my work uh, and, and, you know, a way that I am where it's like, if you are even here, if someone here read it, found a better way to do it, executed it, like, please, I just want someone to do it. I don't need the credit for it. I don't care about that component. It's something that is ultimately just trying to benefit so many more people than than just myself by any means. So, yeah, go to the website, read through it, tear it apart, match it to your locality and run with it. It's not theft at all. Just run with it, please, because we need it. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, but yeah, I'd say, you know, my farm on Instagram or, you know, Indigenous Community Center also has a, a podcast, too, from their web website, IndigenousCommunityCenter.com. Uh, so definitely check out their podcast, too. And, and yeah, I'd say that's, that's the best places to reach me. I'm kind of scaling back a little bit on some stuff this year with, with new baby here. So I'm mostly focusing on breeding and, and helping, uh, you know, make sure the, the Indigenous Community Center farm gets off the ground and, and running really well this year. Awesome. Hunter, this has been great. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been really fun. <laughs>